We've been in the book of Exodus for the past two weeks, and we're, we're starting to get the feel of the book of Exodus, right? We're, we're getting the feel of what's going on. We're, we're getting the, the gist of, of what is about to happen. And the last week, we started to see what God is, or who God is raising up, who God is raising up to be the instrument of his deliverance. And I, I'm kind of behind the eight ball here, because if I'm thinking about a theme, if I could go back to three weeks ago and, and change a new theme for the book of Exodus, I would have been raising up a deliverer. The first four chapters are really raising up a deliverer. They're God raising up this man, Moses. And, and so, you know, we're, we're kind of changing the titles around here, but that's the gist. God is raising up Moses. And we're going to see this morning that when that happens, as God has a, a plan and a purpose for every single one of us, I hope you know that, Christian, God has a plan and a purpose for you. You were created for good works. Ephesians chapter 2 says, created before the foundations of the world for you to walk in. So God's got plans and purposes for you. And as he raises us all up, the way up is down. That's what we're going to see in the life of Moses. To get to where God wants us to be, we go down, right? We go low. The greatest is the least, the servant of all. That's what we've seen in the gospel accounts. That's the way things work in God's economy and the kingdom of heaven. But that's, his, that's really what we're going to see in the second half of, of Exodus chapter 2. Because Moses, we're going to see, he's just starting to get the glimpse. He's just starting to hear who God has called him to be. It's just the very, very beginning. I want to emphasize that it's just starting to happen as God starts to show Moses, Moses, you have not been called to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You have not been called to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt for, for your entire life. Instead, I've called you to a greater purpose. And so I want to use your gifts and your talents and your upbringing for my glory. Right? And that's what God wants to do for all of us. He wants to use the gifts and the talents that, that he's given us and even our upbringing, even those things that we say, that, that couldn't have been good. God can use it for his good and our, or his glory and our and he promises that. But that's kind of what's being set up here. Now, as I was thinking about Moses, I was thinking that Moses is really the rich young ruler making the right decision. Right? Remember in the gospel accounts when Jesus has a rich young ruler come up and, and approach him and the rich young ruler says, Jesus, master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what do I need to do? And Jesus initially says, you need to keep the law. And the rich young ruler says, oh, I've done that. I do, I've done that since my childhood, since, since my youth. So he says, what more do I lack? And then Jesus starts to go a little deeper and he says, he says go and sell all of your things and give it to the poor. He's in essence saying, come and follow me. What you lack is you are in love with your things more than you are in love with me. So sell all those things, forsake all those things, come and follow me, Jesus is saying, and then you will have eternal life because there's no one else to go through. There's no other name to be called on except Jesus to inherit eternal life. So he, he lays all this out. But remember what happens in the gospel accounts, the rich young ruler goes away sorrowful because he had a lot of things. That's what it says. So he makes the decision... I really love my things, I love my position, I love my power, and I love that I still have the youth to, to experience all of it, and so I'm not going to go. And so he leaves sorrowful, but Moses doesn't do that. We talked last week that Moses is really the rich young ruler making the right decision. He has power, he has youth, he has the position, but he says, I'm not going to... I'm not going to hold on to any of those things. I refuse to let that be my identity, and he's going to follow the Lord. But I just want you to know, it's just the beginning. He's just kind of new believer zeal here in a little bit. He's going out there to try and follow the Lord and say, God, I know you got plans for me. I know you're going to do great things with me, but I just don't know what all those things are yet. And that's kind of where we're going here. 
Moses is going to learn that God still has a lot more to do with him. I remember early on when I was a brand new believer, I, I, I was, I knew very little. I knew like two verses, right? And I, I had, I, I hadn't grown up in the church. I hardly knew anything, but I had zeal and I had passion. And I was going to make sure I was telling everybody about Jesus, but I didn't have a whole lot of tact and I, I didn't seem like I really knew a whole lot of answers. So most of my conversations would turn into an argument of me just kind of trying to yell louder because my point was stronger and it severed relationships. I was like 10 for 10 of ending relationships every time I opened my mouth within the first two weeks of being a Christian, right? It was not, it's not the model to follow, but that's kind of how Moses is. He's got this new believer zeal. He's passionate, and while, while we never want that passion to fade, we also want it to be cloaked in love. We want to make sure that what we're doing is because we love the people we're sharing with. So all this is kind of running around, and you're going to see what I'm talking about here as we pick up where we left off last week. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, says this. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So stopping here for a few minutes, look at what we were just told. Moses goes out to see his brethren. Now I want you to know that's exactly what God put in his heart to do. We talked about that in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's testimony. The Holy Spirit starts moving upon Moses' heart, giving him a desire to go visit his brethren, to go get involved with them, to go see them, to go and engage what is going on in his life. And, and he's going to do that. He's already counted the cost. I'm going to forsake this life in Egypt. I'm going to go out to be counted amongst my brethren. So, so that's what he's doing. He's going out to visit. God is certainly moving in Moses' heart. He has compassion upon them. I mean, he sees the plight of God's people. He cares. And so he's, he's looking and seeing a firsthand experience of what is going on. Now, what he sees is going to be a common occurrence. An Egyptian beating a Hebrew was a common thing during this time period, during this era of captivity for the children of Israel. What he's seeing is a common occurrence, this Hebrew, be- this Egyptian beating the Hebrew. And there was, you know, chapter 5, we're going to see that there was a brick-making quota. And if they didn't meet the brick-making quota, they were going to be beaten for it. And we've already been told that they're under harsh, rigorous circumstances. They're being treated very, very poorly, which means they're probably not meeting this quota every single day. They're being beaten a lot. Now, we don't know that that's exactly what's happening here in chapter 2. We're not told that, but I just point that out to, to that was happening. They're under heavy affliction. We've already been told that, but Moses sees this, and he's just starting to hear who God is calling him to be, maybe thinking, you know what? I am God's deliverer. Maybe he's trying to put the cart in front of the horse, as we can do sometimes, or we thinking, I know what God's doing here. I know, and now I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to show the Lord who I really am. I'm tracking with him. And so notice what he does. He takes a look to the left. He takes a look to the right. He sees that nobody's watching or at least he doesn't think so. And then he's going to take vengeance on the Egyptian slave and he's going to end up killing him. Now I want us just to stop here and I want us to just consider this for a moment. I don't think, me personally, I don't think Moses wanted to kill the Egyptian. I don't think that was his premeditated plan. I don't think this was premeditated murder. I look at this more of a crime of passion in the moment. 
Moses goes out there and he sees it and, and it does invoke a response in his heart. And he is wanting to do something, but he, he starts to do something that I think progresses and progresses and ends up in the killing of this Egyptian. Now the question gets asked, was it right or was it wrong? And I want you to know there's, there's strong cases on both sides. One of the things I hope we do in one of the Thrive groups that we eventually launch, I hope that it becomes a discussion-based Thrive group so we can talk about situations just like this and say, hey, was it right? Was it wrong? What does the Bible say? What do you think? What have you heard? And we can sharpen iron and kind of work that out. So I want you to know, I'm going to take a stance because I feel pretty strongly about it, but I'm very much saying if you don't agree with it, that's okay. I still love you, and you know what? I'd love to get coffee with you, and I'd love to respectfully listen to your perspective on it, and we can sharpen iron. But I'm just, I'm going to take a stance on this, and my stance is I do not think this was right. I don't think what Moses did here in killing the Egyptian was what God wanted him to do. And I'm going to give you four reasons why I don't think this is right. Number one, from the text, it sure looks like to me Moses knew it wasn't right. Why do I say that? Because Moses writes down for us, I look to the left, I look to the right. Listen, that's a dead giveaway that what you're about to do, you don't want anyone to see. If there was someone watching, you wouldn't have done it, which means it's not right. And then what does he do? He buries the dude in the sand, right? Uh, What are you doing that for, Moses? If you were proud of the action that you just did and it was right, you'd want to carry that dude around. Sorry for the graphic image, but you'd say, this was right, But he doesn't. He buries him in the sand, which is showing us he doesn't believe it's right. He's got a conflict within his own spirit, his conscience, the Holy Spirit saying, Moses, I don't want you to do this. He's like, but nobody's watching. Nobody can see. God can see and God is watching. We'll talk that about in a minute. So it just just wasn't, wasn't right. Moses knew it wasn't right. The Spirit of God was testifying of that in his own heart. I have a rule that I live by. I I live my personal life by this, and and it goes like this. You don't have to justify doing good. You don't have to make reasons why you're going to do good. You don't have to come up with examples or or rationalization to kind of justify it amongst yourself. You can just do good because it's good, which means this. If you have to justify it, it's probably not good. If you have to come up with reasons of why it's okay and God's going to be okay that you're going to do what you're doing or you're going to continue doing what you're doing when the Holy Spirit of God is bringing conviction to your heart, it's probably not good. Christians, let Jesus be Lord. Let the Holy Spirit illuminate Jesus' heart and his will for your life. Don't justify doing something that the Spirit of God is saying, I don't want you to do that anymore. Listen, the Lord has full right to tell me that about anything because he's not going to tell me something that's inconsistent with his word, which means if he wants me to do something or stop doing something, he's Lord, and I get to say, yes, Lord. So just know that. Number two, the second reason why this wasn't right was because it just wasn't necessary. There's some things we think we ought to do, but it just wasn't necessary. And I I want you to remember, Moses, at this point, is still a prince of Egypt. He goes out there to just observe, kind of see what's going on. This Egyptian slave master is much, 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 much lower in rank than Moses is. All Moses needed to say was, stop hitting that man, and it would have been done. 
Moses wanting to defend the defenseless is great. Moses wanting to stand up for the oppressed is great. Moses wanting to come to the aid and stand in the gap for his brother is great, great, great. But it wasn't necessary that he killed him. All right, it just wasn't something that needed to happen. Reason number three, and this one gets a little bit more serious and something that is very purposeful for all of us. Number three is this just wasn't God's way. This just was not the way God wanted this thing to happen. And I want you to know this. It's such an important lesson for us individually, especially because we live in such an individualistic culture. We see here that Moses is just one man, just one man. But I'm going to show you some verses in a minute that in his zeal, in his passion, as the Lord starts to move him, he really thinks, I'm going to be able to deliver all of God's people, all of my brethren, by my own hand. He really thinks, I'm going to take them out one by one. I'm going to get my Samson on before Samson gets his Samson on, and I'm going to wipe out a bunch of Egyptians in hand-to-hand combat. He really believes that in this moment. We have verses like this one, Acts 7, verses 24 and 25, back from Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Stephen says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he, Moses, defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Look at this next verse. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. There's two important words in this verse here that I really want to point out. The first one, it says, Moses supposed. So he says, well, I suppose this is what I'm supposed to do here. When you say suppose, you're saying, this kind of makes sense, but I don't really get it, so I'm going to roll with it and hope it works out. That's what it means when you say, I suppose this is what I'm supposed to do, right? We're going to see later when he goes back to Egypt after 40 years in the desert of Midian, we're going to see he knows that he knows that he knows what he's supposed to do. He doesn't just suppose this is the right thing and then act upon it, right? He doesn't assume to suppose is making a general assumption about the way I'm thinking about something is the right way. And friends, it's oftentimes not the right way. How we think, how we as human beings, how we think things are supposed to go are oftentimes not the way God wants them to go. We have Bible verses that say that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. There's a way that seems right to a man and in the end it is death because our way is not always God's way. But what does Moses do? He goes out, he sees a situation that is supposed to invoke a response to him, but what does he do? He looks to the left and he looks to the right, but he doesn't look towards heaven and say, God, what do you want me to do in this situation? He thinks he knows, and so he responds in his own strength, in his own way. And I say, how is that? When has that ever turned out good? Think of Bible examples. When is just saying, I think this is what I'm supposed to do, so I'm just going to roll with it. When has that ever turned out good? Think of Abraham and Sarah, and then how they're waiting for the promise of God. They're waiting for the promised son Isaac, and yet they start getting a little impatient, and, and Hagar says, you know, I suppose you should probably lay with my maidservant Hagar, because that's going to help the situation out. And we're like, no, that does not help anything out. That's the proverbial work of the flesh. Or think of James and John, the two disciples of the Lord. They're going to be named the Sons of Thunder, right? A nickname for them, right? But why? 
because they're passing through a Samaritan village. They're trying to find hospitality, see if they can stay somewhere, see if anyone will give Jesus and his disciples hospitality. They don't find any. So James and John say, hey, Lord, I suppose you probably want us to call down fire from heaven and just toast all these guys. And Jesus is like, um, no, that is not the way that I want you to do that. He says, I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save men's lives. But again, I just point that out. There's a way that sometimes seems right to us. This has to be what God wants me to do, so I suppose I'm going to do it. And that is the complete opposite of what God wants us to do. We need to slow down and not suppose we know. We have a God who has made himself accessible to us through Jesus Christ. We have a God who bends his ear to hear our prayers. He wants to speak to us. He's given us his word. We don't have to suppose. We say, God, show me. Show me what your will is for my life. Show me what you want me to do in this situation. And then you know what we can do? Is we can wait. We can wait upon the Lord until we hear from him and go in his strength, go in his supply, go where he wants us to go, do things his way. Moses, there there really can be a case that Moses thinks he can do this all on his own. We're gonna see... Another man in the Bible who's going to have a great heart to do a great work for the Lord. And this man's name is Zerubbabel. And he's going to have a desire to go and rebuild the temple temple in Jerusalem after it has been destroyed, after the 70 years of captivity. All this is recorded in the book of Ezra. But Zerubbabel is going to start and he's going to rally some troops because it's a great thing. Let's worship God back in Jerusalem again. That's a great thing. God's will is in it. He's behind it. But what they're going to do is they're going to find out that this works a lot harder than we thought it was going to be. There's discouragement setting in. Things aren't going as easily as we thought they were supposed to go and it was absolutely by God's design that their strength was failing because they were doing it in their own strength. And so the Lord is going to say in Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, it says, so he answered, Zechariah the prophet sent to Zerubbabel, so he answered the word of the Lord, to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. When I talk about how Moses delivering this or trying to deliver the nation of Israel in his own strength, by his own hand, as Stephen had said, this is what he really needs to learn. That it's never going to be by his might. It's never going to be according to his power. It's going to be a work of the spirit. It's going to be what God is going to do. So I want you to apply that to your own life because sometimes we can kind of function in a capacity where we think, I got this. That statement alone is riddled with pride. I got this. I don't got anything. I can't hardly brush my teeth in my own strength, right? My arm gets fatigued. That's probably a problem. That's a separate sermon. But I think about how important this this truth is to trust the Lord, to rely upon his spirit. And I want you to know that it permeates every aspect of our lives. We live in such an individualistic culture. We think we can do a whole lot of things all on our own. And when it comes to our Christianity, when it comes to walking with Jesus, when it comes to picking up our cross and following him, it has to be a spiritual work. It has to be supplied and fueled, birthed and grown by the spirit of God. I can't sanctify myself. I can put myself into a position where God can keep working on me, but I can't do it myself. And I want you to just understand that, know that, be encouraged by that because God does finish what he starts and he does have a plan. So when Moses says in Acts chapter 7 that he thinks he's going to deliver them by his hand, 
Look at what he's going to say in a few chapters from now. In Exodus 13, verse verse 3, Moses is going to understand who really gets the glory for delivering the people. And Moses said, notice, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, listen, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place, right? He's not, he's no longer thinking by Exodus chapter 13 that God is going to do it by his own hand. He knows that God's going to be the thrust and the power and the supernatural behind everything that's going to take place. So just know that it just wasn't God's way. It wasn't right because it just wasn't God's way. The fourth and final reason why I believe this wasn't right for Moses to kill this Egyptian is that it just wasn't God's timing. It just wasn't God's timing. And we, we, we think about that sometimes. We say, well, how important is timing? You know, we here in the world, oh, timing is everything. And I think, well, you know, maybe, maybe timing is important. Certainly God's timing is always perfect. But I think about that. It just isn't, it isn't God's time. And we say, well, how do we know it isn't, how do we know it isn't God's timing? And so, well, we know because God hasn't even given Moses the plan yet, right? He's going to give Moses the plan in, in Exodus chapter 3. And then if we really zoom out and look at this big picture, I want you to think about what God is really going to do through the deliverance of his people out of bondage. Moses is kind of getting the idea of what is going to happen, but Moses is vastly underestimating the enormity of this situation. He has no idea just how huge what is about to happen is going to be. And I want you to consider this. In our day, this has already happened, but here in Exodus chapter 2, until Jesus comes in the likeness of men, until Jesus is born of a virgin, walks a sinless life, dies a sacrificial death on a cross, rises from the dead, conquering sin, death, the devil, and the grave, ascends to heaven where he sits, work completed at the right hand of the Father as the King of kings, the name of names, the Lord of lords. Until that happens, again, it has happened for us, but in Acts chapter 2, it has not happened yet. Until that happens, what we're going to see in the book of Exodus, God delivering his people out of bondage with his mighty outstretched hand. It is the single event that validates, verifies, affirms, points to the awesome deliverance and redemptive ability of Almighty God unlike any other event before it or after until Jesus is going to do what Jesus does. Think about how big it's going to be. Which now you tie it all back together and you say, you, you say, Moses, God was never going to do this in the shadows by you snuffing out one Egyptian and burying him in the sand, right? That was never going to be what God was going to do. He wants it so visible that everybody throughout all of human history can point back and say, the God of Israel, the Lord God creator of all, he is awesome. And this is what he can do. This is what he has done. The nation of Israel exists as a nation still today because God did this. And we can say, you are amazing. You are awesome, right? It wasn't ever supposed to be this hidden thing in the outskirts in some desert, right? So it just wasn't God's timing. It wasn't, it wasn't right because Moses knew it. He had the spirit of conviction. It wasn't right because the, it wasn't God's way. It wasn't God's timing. All those things that we're seeing here. But all of that is still going to be used, because even after this, we'll see it's going to end up being quite a blunder for Moses and maybe even setting back what God wanted to do, God's still going to be able to redeem it. Because he does respond this way, and there are ramifications. So picking up now, verse 13 says, And when Moses went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, 
And he said to the one who did wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So Moses tries to hide his problems. He tries to do what he does in secret, and it doesn't happen that way. Somebody knows. So the next time Moses goes out, the very next day, still to visit his brethren, I don't know, maybe kind of vigilante justice. I don't know what he's thinking going out the second day, but he's like, I'm still see see if I can take down Egyptian number two or three. But at this point, he sees there's two Hebrews fighting, two of his own brethren. And we're going to see that he wants to be, he thinks that I'm supposed to be the prince and the judge over them. Right? A prince is someone who has the right to, to say what he wants to say and expects loyalty out of his subjects. A, a judge is someone who's able to make a determination rule on a matter and have that rule have a final say. So he shows up and he's like a prince and a judge. He makes a determination. He says to the one who he feels was wrong, why are you doing this? Why are you striking your companion? What's going on? Why are you fighting amongst yourselves? And again, probably a separate sermon to talk about there. But they don't even respond to that question. They just ask Moses a question in return and said, who made you ruler and a judge over us? What, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And, and we'd imagine Moses just takes a step back and kind of, he's fearful, he's terrified, he's cooked, right? They know, somebody knows that I did this. It wasn't hidden. And then he says, if they find out, it's just a matter of time before Pharaoh is going to find out. And that's going to cause a whole lot of problems taking your, your memories back to chapter 1 and we first started the book of Exodus, we remember that as the nation of Israel was growing exceedingly numerous, Pharaoh at the time starts to get nervous about the military threat that they're becoming. He says, he says they could join with our enemies and they'd be too numerous to defeat us. So what's happening is Pharaoh is going to find out that, that a prince of Egypt is going out there and siding with the Hebrews and actually killing an Egyptian. He may be, they don't want him to be the prince and the judge or the ruler over them, but Pharaoh is seeing the possibility of that exact circumstance. And because of the animosity of their relationship, he says, well, this is an opportunity for me to take Moses out. So that's what kind of sets up here. Moses is right when he says, Pharaoh's going to come after me, and Pharaoh does. Pharaoh puts a price on his head, and that's going to result in the next circumstance where Moses is going to flee this situation, leaving Egypt, going over to the region of Midian. Now, the Midianites that we're going to see and talk about here in a minute, I, I want us to know it's, it's somewhat complicated, but the Midianites, they, they're, they're of the, the family of Abraham, but not through Isaac and Jacob. If you remember, after Abraham's wife Sarah dies, Abraham remarries, and his next wife Keturah has several more sons. One of them is Midian. And so the Midianites, they're, they're kind of Semitic people in a sense. They're, they're of the family of Abraham, but again, not through the line of Jacob or Isaac and Jacob as we see the rest of the children of Israel. So there's some, there's some similarity there, and you're going to see that, that, that there's something here that, that is noble that is going on here. But I, the last thing I want you to see is I want you to see Moses. Moses is going to leave this place of Egypt. He's going to have to flee all that he's ever known. 40 years of being raised in Moses, raised in Egypt, and he's going to go to the Midian Desert, and we're going to see another 40-year time period. It's not, it doesn't look like it in the text. We're going to cover a, a, lot, a lot of years, 40 more years, but I want us to see what he's doing. He sits down at a well. And that, that just struck me when I was going through this, 
this, this week, he's finally sitting down. He is, he's going out in the field to stand up. He's in Pharaoh's house and he's standing up. And now he's finally sitting down. And as he's sitting down at this well, this is going to be the moment where God actually starts raising him up God's way. Right? When he's standing up in his own strength, when he's doing things his own way, when he's functioning on all the wisdom of the Egyptians, when he's, when he's mighty in word and deed, he's Mr. Moses of Egypt, nothing's happened, right? There's no fruit, he's making a mess. And then he goes down and he sits down at this well, out of his own ideas, running out of his own strength, wanting to know what's going to come next, and now God is going to start raising him up. But I want us to try and just picture this. At this point, Moses is, he has to be thinking, I have just lost everything. I, I did forsake becoming Pharaoh's daughter, or perhaps even the next Pharaoh. I did leave Egypt, but I, at that time, I thought it was because it was going to be the deliverer over the children of Israel. I thought at least I'd have a lot of family around me. And they would, you know, like me being their deliverer. And now he doesn't even have that. Now he's in Midian all by himself. Now he's got nothing, in a sense, and he's probably thinking, I blew it. I blew it. Has anyone ever felt that way? Has anyone ever felt like, I had all these things going for me, I had all this momentum, and I made a decision, and then I made a blunder, and now I'm sitting at a well, and I've got nothing. I've got no more fallback plan. I've got nothing. Does anyone feel like that today? I want you to know, like, I love that we're reading the book of Exodus, and we're reading about a God who is able to redeem and a God who's going to redeem Moses. A God who's going to use the situation that we just read about, and he's going he's to tell Moses, Moses, the way up is down. I didn't like that you got here, or the way that you got here, but I like that you're here now, and I can certainly do great things now that you are. And so I want you to know that. You may be, I don't know how I got here, and maybe, maybe it was not God's will for you to get to the place where you're at today, but you're there, and there can be only one way than up if you really just let the Lord be Lord and guide and lead as we're going to see him do for Moses. Moses is going to start being raised up because God is not finished with Moses. God isn't finished with you. God is not done. God's grace is not insufficient here. His grace is sufficient and his grace does abound when I blow it, when you blow it and he's gonna pick things right back up. So it it starts kind of the redemptive work of God in Moses' life starts right here. Verse 16, it says, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to Reuel, their father, he said, How is it that you've come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, Where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So as Moses is sitting here by this well of water, kind of feeling defeated perhaps, thinking, I don't know what's going to happen next. I blew it. Notice that God brings him the next opportunity to do things right this time. The seven daughters of the priest of Midian go there to gather water to water their father's flock. 
And then what happens? Moses seeing that and he's you know thinking, well, that's that's neat, all right. And then some shepherds come and drive off these seven women. Another act of injustice, another act of oppression. This whole idea that that might makes right, the thing that Moses cannot stand. And so what is he going to do? He's going to stand in the gap again. He's going to defend them. He's going to make it right. He's going to drive those shepherds off. But notice he does it without killing anyone this time. He learns to be a righteous deliverer right here. And God starts teaching him more about himself. We're going to see through this situation that God is going to raise Moses up and start to teach him really God's model for servant leadership. The very, the very next thing Moses is going to do is notice he's going to water the flock. He doesn't just drive him off and then go sit back down and say, all right, finish out your task, right? He's a servant. He wants to be a servant because God is a servant. And so Jesus goes, well, Jesus did some awesome things, but Moses goes and he waters the flock. Think about it. Moses has never served anyone ever, right? He was a prince of Egypt. But now he's serving. And through that situation, he's going to get bread. God is going to be his provision, Then he's going to get a wife and think about all that God is going to be able to teach him through being a husband, right? How to, you know, lift the lid and put the lid down and put your dishes in the dishwasher and like all those things that husband, no, how to be, how to be a leader, how to be patient, how to be loving, how to be wise with your words, how to wash your wife in the water of the word, all those incredible things, right? He's going to learn, he's going to have a son and he's going to name that son, notice he's going to name his son Gershom. And Gershom, it means, he names him Gershom because it says, I was a stranger in a foreign land. I want you to think about, who does that sound like? Who else is a stranger in a foreign land? The very people that Moses is being raised up to deliver? You see how God does that? Like God gives us a heart for the affliction of the people we care for and want to see God deliver them. Right, it's beautiful. God is sowing in his heart here in this moment. And then it's important. I love my father-in-law. My father-in-law has been an incredible, incredible blessing to me in my life. And I love that he he gets this father-in-law who we get the idea he's called a priest of Midian. And we get the idea that he is worshiping the Lord God of Israel, the, the God of Abraham. His name is called Reuel here. We're gonna learn of him later is Jethro. But the name Reuel means friend of God. So we get the idea he's worshiping God. He's going to be a mentor to Moses. He's going to teach Moses more about the God of Israel, the God of Abraham. And now Moses is going to really get the idea to hear and understand who he is and what God wants to do with him and how God has always promised the deliverance of his people. So think about it. But 40 years are going to pass. In that meantime, this is going to happen. Verse 23 says, Now it happened in the process of time that the children of Egypt died... Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So I love how the scene kind of shifts. It's out here in Midian for a while watching Moses and it says, meanwhile back in Egypt, that Pharaoh who wanted to kill Moses has died. And you kind of get this idea that there's this false dawn that maybe things are going to start getting better for the children of Israel there, only they don't because God doesn't want them to because God wants to see them delivered out of that place. So now they're crying out to the Lord even more. They're crying out for God's deliverance. And now it is God's timing. So God is hearing them and he's remembering the promises made to them and while it seems, notice this friends, while it seems from their perspective like God hasn't been doing anything for the past 80 years. 
He has, right? His deliverer has been born. In the last 40 years, his deliverer has been shaped and molded and the rough edges knocked off and raised up for such a time as this. God is working. Even when it seems like nothing's happening. Look at the book of Exodus. Look at the Bible. God is working. And so now we got Moses being back on the situation and I just want us to think Moses' life, 120 years, it's going to be divided in kind of three 40-year periods. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert of Midian, and then 40 years where he's leading the nation of Israel. But in between that second and third set of 40 years, that's where we are at here as we close out chapter 2. But we're seeing that God has been working into Moses what he wants to work out through Moses. It's just taken time. It's taken time for God to shape his heart to be who he's called to be. But I just want us to apply this to our lives. I love how, how patient God is to do this. I love that God doesn't shortcut some of these things because if he did, we wouldn't be ready for it and we wouldn't handle them the way that he wanted to, wants us to handle them. But when I think about Moses, I think about my own life, I think about some of your lives, I think about many examples in the Bible where this same pattern, kind of a promise, a call, you start to get a hint of what God is going to do, and then you got this long desert period where it seems like nothing is happening. Can anyone relate to that? Has that been the story of your life in some part, right? God, he speaks, he calls you, he says, I'm going to do great things with you, and you're like, yes, I can't wait, let's start tomorrow, and if we did, we're, you know, Egyptians are falling and we're burying them in the desert because we really shouldn't start tomorrow. But then this long desert period, can you're like, Lord, what happens? This is like a style of God. This is a pattern that he does. Think of, again, Sarah having to wait. She gets a promise that you're going to have a, you're gonna have a child. Yet there's this long period of time where it seems like it's not going to happen. Think of Joseph. He starts having some dreams that God is going to raise him up over his family. And then there's this long period of time where nothing's happening. Think of David. David gets anointed to be the king over Israel. And there's this long period of time where it's like the opposite is taking place. And then we got Moses. Again, he's promised. God starts moving in his heart. And then this whole time period comes. I've experienced seasons like that where it just feels like, is this ever going to happen? The promise or the hint that God was showing me seems like it's the furthest thing from reality. But what I want us to see is even in that time, God is still working. Even when it feels like nothing's happening, God is working. God is moving and accomplishing his purposes. When 40 years have passed, here's Moses in this desert period and he's gonna be able to see that everything God did was purposeful. God teaches him how to be a shepherd. God teaches him how to be a leader. God softens his heart. God gives him empathy. I mean, so many more things. But it starts to see that it's all purposeful. But we want to know, well, why the long season at all, God? Why, well, just tell me. Give me the tips right now so I can just avoid the long season. And I go, I can't do that. You can't, you can't expedite the perfect work of God. He's going to do it in his timing. But I want, you to, I want you just to know this. Take heart in some of these situations. These are the moments that really purify our motives. These are the moments where, where God says, do you want the dream? Do you want the outcome of what I promised? Or do you want me, the one who gave the promise in the first place? Am I enough for you? Because if I'm enough for you, then what I'm going to do through you will never compete with your love for me. And it has to be forged there. Until God makes sure that we are under what he wants us to be under, he won't put us over what we're supposed to have under us. I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it made sense in my head. But that's what he wants to do. He wants to raise us up but under his authority, under his leadership, so we don't do it like Moses did initially, our way. We do it his way. 
But think about some of these things. This, this is just something I came across in this time that I've, I, I really thought was profound. If God shortcuts Moses and just skips the whole desert period, what kind of ruler would he have been over the nation of Israel? He would have been a ruler just like Pharaoh, wouldn't he? He would have been oppressive just like Pharaoh. He would have been prone to losing his temper and beating the sheep just like Pharaoh. Right? It had to happen. The time period that God is waiting, that you feel like you're waiting, it has to be that way. God is working out what he needs to work out so you can be who he's called you to be. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep trusting him. When we think of those four, those three 40-year periods of Moses' life, it's amazing that for 40 years while Moses is in Egypt, he's being taught every day, you're something. Moses, you're something. Oh, you are something special. And then he goes into Mo, to Midian, he sits at a well for a while, he starts tending sheep out in anonymity, and he's learning, Moses, you are nothing. Moses, you are really nothing. There is nothing special about you, Moses. This is you, you're nothing. And then he's going to spend the next 40 years of his life seeing that God and only God is able to do something with nothing. Only God can do this great work with us when we realize the way up is down. When we realize I am the least and most insignificant part of any equation that includes God. He's the something, I'm the nothing. And he can do something with nothing, something awesome with nothing as we empty ourselves to be filled with him, to be used for his glory. So I I just love that. As we kind of wrap this up this morning, and and maybe some of you are, you're finding yourself in, in maybe a desert period. Maybe you find yourself and you're sitting at the well. You're at the well in Midian and and you're thinking, I don't know what's going to come next. I, I want you to know that Jesus is at the well with you. And if Jesus is there at the well, then it is well with you. Jesus can do a great work, and he, he wants to do that. So I want to tell you two things. If you're at this well, if you're at this place, and you don't know what's coming next, I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you to keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. I want you to look towards heaven before you move, not making your decisions based upon what's on the left or the right. I want you to be open for the next opportunity that comes across your path to serve him. Listen, even if it means scooping out some water for some sheep. That may be the very beginning of what God wants to do to start showing, starting to show you be faithful in the little things and I'll give you greater opportunities to be faithful, but it has to start somewhere. So be aware of that. And then number two, I want you just to remember this as you sit at this well. Trust that God is working. Trust that God is working. Keep praying. As we just read, he hears, he sees, he acknowledges, and in his timing, it will come to pass. He is working. So let him have his perfect work. Let him, what, it, what he has begun in the spirit, let him finish it in the spirit. Don't think we can complete it in the flesh. And the last thing I just want to say, if you're here, and maybe you're like, I, I don't even know how to get to the well. I want to know that Jesus is the well. Jesus is the one who out of him is the one who provides rivers of living water. Jesus is the one who says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I will give you thirst that you'll, I'll give you water that you'll never thirst again. So if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus and you've never just trusted him to be your Lord and Savior, here's the opportunity to do that. Surrender your life. We've been talking about all morning. The way up is down. And to come to Jesus requires a surrender. I am a sinner, Lord Jesus. You are perfect. You are holy and I'm not. But I know that if I put my faith in you, you will impart your righteousness, your holiness into my life. You lived the life I couldn't live. You died the death I, I deserved. You rose again. And I want your righteousness to cover me. I want your blood to wash me white as snow. And he will do that. 
That's the gospel. That's the promise. That's the good news. So if that's you, pray that in. Let Jesus be your Lord and Savior today.